this series on who we are, who we really are. And I, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed what he's had to teach for us so far. And so he said, you can either come up with something totally different, or you can add on to the series I was already doing. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do kind of a review of the series that Pastor Doug has already been leading us through. So with any good review, we've got to remember what's already been said, right? So the first sermon of the series was, I am, does anybody remember? The beloved, right on. Not the, yeah, you thought we were throwing the answer on the screen for you. That's today. The first week was, I am the beloved, and I heard a bunch of people say it. That's awesome. What was the second week? Does anybody remember? I am broken. That was an easy one to agree with, right? I'm broken. Yeah, we're like, yep, busted. And then the third one, I am a target. And what kind of target? A protected target, which makes all the difference, right? And then the third one, the fourth one, last week was, I am the image of God, that we bear and carry the image of God around with us. This week, the answer's up on the board. I am a work in progress. Let's all say it together. I am a work in progress. Now let's all say, in fact, lean to the person on your right and say, you are a work in progress. Now look to the person on your left and say, you are a work in progress. Now point at your own chest and say, I am a work in progress. And the good news is, is God doesn't expect us to be at the end of that progress, right? He just expects us to be taking each step as he leads us. So that's, that's the good news. Today we're going to be talking about how we're a work in progress. And when I was thinking about what passage of scripture to use to illustrate that, um, the passage from the Garden of Eden where Eve and Adam encounter Satan or the serpent is what came to mind for me. And that's a passage that we all know very well. We all have heard the story. We all know the picture. We've seen uh, video recreations of it, all that kind of thing. So we need to approach it as if, well, I'd like to approach it as if we didn't know it. As if we're approaching it with fresh eyes and ears. Because I think a lot of times when we do a passage in Scripture that we're very familiar with, it's really easy to turn turn off the brain, turn off the heart, close ourselves off and not get anything new out of it. Does that make sense? At least I'm guilty of that. Maybe that's because I grew up as a pastor's son and spent a lot of time in church. But I know how easy it is to stop listening to Scripture when we think we have it figured out. And luckily enough, well, luckily for me, I don't know, we'll see for you guys in a second, Caleb and I both have taken a class now twice, once we took it in Portland, and then we were lucky enough to be able to host it here at the church, called Oral Bible Storytelling Methods. And this whole class is about, uh, is a class offered to pastors, youth pastors, teachers in private schools, as well as missionaries, because it's been determined in, in some studies of recent years that one of the best ways to reach our culture right now both our culture in the U.S. as well as cultures around the world, even people that don't share the same language, is to use story. Rather than a traditional teacher stands up in front or pastor stands up in front of the church and people sit in rows of chairs and pews like you guys and you take in the information that we give, the idea is that we approach the scriptures together, we step into the story together, and we say, God, what do you have for us? It's nothing magical. In fact, it's really nothing new. It's just a class that is aimed at helping us to approach God's scripture and bring it off the page and wrestle with it a little bit and dig in it together so that we can say we discovered some truths that God had for us in it. And the teacher of the class, I I should have realized after we hosted it here that she might have another agenda. The teacher of the class after the second class 
came up to Caleb and I and said, you know, there's a few churches that have volunteered to try this on a large scale with the entire church body on a Sunday morning service. Would you guys be willing to do that? Because normally this, mo- this method is used within youth groups or within people groups that missionaries can go and reach or within small groups and that kind of thing. But they're attempting to study how it could work in large format with a full church service. So today, this is the opportunity. When, when Doug said, hey, I'm going to be out of town, could you add on to the series? And it just seemed to fit well with the story we're going to do. So we're going to take a little adventure together. It's going to be a little different than what you're used to. Um, it's going to require some more participation of all of us. So be ready for that. I see Carson. He's like, participation, I'm in. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Yes, yes. So we're going to approach that passage in Genesis, where they're in the Garden of Eden. And there's a few setup things we need before we launch into the story. Because remember, we're acting as if we don't really know that story very well. So the characters in the story are God, who's in most of the stories in the Bible. And we know a lot of things about God already. And the serpent who's also been identified as Satan later on in Scripture and by a lot of Bible studies. Um, Or we can call him the serpent or Satan, however you feel comfortable. And then there's Adam and Eve, the first two people ever created, right, by God. And then we have the Garden of Eden, this place that's hard for us to picture because we don't know what it's like to live in a place where there are no weeds, where there's no pain, and where at least one of the animals, perhaps more, can talk. Maybe we've dreamt about that. Maybe we've seen movies where that can happen. But we know that at least this serpent could talk. Whether or not other animals could, I don't know. You tell me. So we're going to enter the story now after we pray. Lord God, I just ask that you would help us to take this adventure together today and enjoy hearing your words. That we would step neck deep, God, into the truths that you teach us. And you would remind us that we're a work in progress And what that means. That you have not abandoned us, God, because of our mistakes. But you've stepped in alongside us compassionately to help us. And we thank you. Amen. So the setting is the Garden of Eden. The serpent was the shrewdest and craftiest of all the animals that God had created in the garden. And one day, he approached the woman, Eve... And he said, Eve, is it really true that you're not allowed to eat any of the fruit from any of the trees in the Garden of Eden? And Eve thought for a second. She looked back at the serpent and she said, of course not. We're allowed to eat from all of the trees in the garden except for the one tree in the middle of the garden. For God said that if we eat the fruit from it or even touch it, we will die. And the serpent looked back at Eve and said, surely you won't die. God knows that when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like him and you'll know the difference between good and evil. And Eve was convinced. She looked at the tree and thought, that is beautiful. And the fruit on the tree, delicious, ripe, juicy. And she wanted it. It looked good to eat. And she wanted the wisdom that she thought she would gain through eating it. So she took a piece of the fruit, and she ate it. And then she took another piece of the fruit and handed that to Adam, and he ate it. And immediately in that moment, their eyes were opened, and they felt great shame because they realized they were naked and fully exposed. 
So they went and grabbed some fig leaves and sewed them together to cover themselves. Later on that day, in the evening, as a cool breeze blew through the garden, they heard the Lord God walking through the garden, as was his habit. And they were afraid. So they ran and they hid in the trees among the garden. And God called out to them. He said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, Lord, we heard you among the trees and walking through the garden, and we were afraid and ashamed because we were naked, so we hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to? And Adam said, Lord God, that woman that you made for me gave me the fruit, so I ate it. And God said, Eve, what have you done? And Eve said, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. And that's the end of our story for today. Now, you know more that happens following, right? God slays an animal and provides clothing for them. He explains how all of life is going to change now. He boots them out of the garden, puts an angel there to guard it, and tells them life is going to be hard. And they leave the Garden of Eden wearing the clothes that God had created for them by killing an animal for the first time ever, as far as we know. So that's our story. The next step in dealing with the story, I've already told it to you, the next step is for a brave individual to come in and tell us the story one more time. As much as you can remember, it doesn't have to be perfect. I didn't do it perfectly. If you were to look back through it, I didn't hit every word right. But I'm looking for a brave individual that'd be willing to come up and tell us the story one more time. Now, I know Carson's hands up, so he, he's my backup plan. What do you say? Who's brave? This is, this is where the participation starts, in theory. Okay, Marv's going to come up and do it. How about a round of applause? All right, Marv, it's all you, buddy. Just give us what you remember. What I remember? You bet. The, the uh, characters in this story are God, the serpent. Oh, you don't have to go that far. Oh, okay. Just tell us the story. Oh, okay. That gold star for you, though. That's okay. extra credit. Okay. Where do you want me to start, then? Right when the serpent ap- approaches Eve. Oh, well, the serpent went to Eve and said, look, is it true that you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden? And Eve thought for a moment. She looked back at the serpent and said, absolutely not. We can eat anything in the garden except for the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. God said that if we touch it or eat it, we'll die. And the serpent looked at her and said, seriously? (laughs) Really? You're going to touch fruit and die? I think God's like pulling your leg here a little bit because he knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like him. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be able to see the truth. You'll be able to know what is good, what is bad, what's right, and what's wrong. So we've walked over to the tree and went, hmm, really? Picked one of the apples or pomegranates, whatever you want to call it. Picked one of the fruit, took a bite, 
And her eyes were opened. So then she went to Adam and said, here, eat this. And Adam, being a guy, said, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kinda, yeah, yes, dear. It's like when women say, here, smell this. Is it bad? So Adam took a bite, and his eyes were open, and immediately they felt shame because they realized they were naked. So they went, found some fig leaves, covered themselves. Later that night, God was walking through the garden calling for them. And he said, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Adam said, I'm here, Lord. He says, why are you hiding? He says, I'm hiding because I'm ashamed because we're naked. He says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to? He says, okay, wait a minute. That woman that you made for me tricked me into eating it. Adam said, or God said, Eve, is this true? She says, well, yeah, but the serpent tricked me into eating it, so it's really not my fault. And with that, you know the rest of the story. How about a round of applause for Mr. Marv being brave? Now, Marv, the little prize I have here to thank you for your... Don't think these are Easter candies from Easter because they're in eggs, but they might be. I'm positive they're not. (laughs) Now, Marv did a pretty good job. He added in a little bit of the Marv translation, as you can imagine any of us would, as we went through a passage of Scripture. But he did a a great job, didn't he? Okay. Yeah, the second round of applause is a great idea. So now the pressure's off. You don't have to come up and tell the whole story. Now we're going to walk back through the story all together. So where did this story start? In the garden, right? What do we know about the garden? It's beautiful. Okay. Who did this story start with? Who was the first character in the story? The serpent. You're right. The serpent. And what do we know about that serpent? He could talk. He's crafty. We don't know that he's mean yet. We can kind of imply that he was because he's a trickster. Yeah. Okay. He was described as crafty and shrewd. Who did he talk to first? Or actually... Who did he talk to? Eve, right? Okay. What did he ask her? Right? And what did she say? No. Right. Then what did the serpent say? Right? He questioned it, right? Surely you won't die. Surely you won't die. Now, there's one thing that I should add into the story real quick, and that's that the word naked, when it comes up here, the original language for the word naked doesn't just imply physical nakedness. Okay, the original language that was used in the scriptures implies more than physical nakedness, which is what we usually think when we read it, because naked to us means no clothes on, right? And it did mean that for them, but it implies a whole lot more. Naked meant full exposure, being fully exposed and unprotected, which is a further explanation of not wearing clothes, right? When you're not wearing clothes, you're fully exposed to the elements. You're unprotected. So keep that in mind as we think about the word naked in this story. 
So the serpent questioned Eve about it and said, surely you won't die. And he told her something that would happen if she ate the fruit. What did he say? Your eyes will be opened. And what else? You'll be like God. And then one more thing. You'll know the difference between good and evil or you'll know good and evil. Okay? And then what did Eve think? What did she do right after he said that? Right? What she first did was look at the tree one more time. She looked at the tree, and she saw that the tree looked beautiful, and the fruit looked what? Delicious, ripe, good to eat. Mm -hmm. And she wanted something other than the fruit. What was that? Wisdom, to be like God. Some people say power. Yeah. Okay. What'd she do? She grabbed some and ate it. And I don't picture the serpent, especially because it doesn't look like the serpent probably had hands. I don't picture the serpent handing her the fruit. I picture her picking the fruit and eating it. (sighs) And then what? Yeah. Right away, she gave some to Adam. What does that tell us about Adam? (laughs) He was weak. Well, we can... We can assume that they were both weak in that moment. Yeah, but he was there. I heard somebody say that. Sometimes we read that story, we think Adam wasn't there until later. But if she gave him the fruit right then, before her eyes were opened, where was he? Right beside her. So that means when Satan was talking, when the serpent was talking to Eve, who else was hearing? Adam. We can imply that at least. That's an interesting thing to hang on to there, especially when we put all the blame on Eve. Because who said, who, out of all the people in this story, who had the least amount of lines? Who said the least? Adam. You're right. Okay. What did they feel when their eyes were opened? Shame. What does shame feel like? Yeah, it feels bad, but what kind of bad? Why do we use the word shame instead of just saying, I feel bad? Guilt, embarrassed. Yeah. What did they do? Before they hid, they, well, it's kind of like hiding. They did something like hiding first. They covered themselves up. And how did they cover themselves up? With fig leaves, right? From one of the other plants. And then something happened later on. What time of the day did it happen? Evening. And what was happening in the garden that evening? God was walking through the garden, and a cool breeze was blowing through the garden. The Bible tells us that. So I picture that, that quiet time of night where it's not totally dark yet, and it's kind of peaceful, and there's a cool breeze blowing, and God's walking through the garden, and we know he's done that more than once, so they're used to that. And they hear him, and what's their immediate feeling when they hear him? <laughs> oh, crud. Yeah. They feel shame again, and so they do what? They go and hide. And where do they hide? In the trees and bushes. Yep. And so what does God say? What does God do? Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say? We hid. We're afraid. And then God asks him a question. It's a really pointed question. What's he asking? No, before that one, there was one more question. Okay, why are you hardening was the first one. Then he said, after Adam said, we were afraid because we were naked, then God said, who told you that you were naked? 
No, go ahead. Might have been. Might have been. been. The Lord says, who told you you were naked? Might have been. Might have been. Or it might have been quiet. But I can tell you what, I've been in trouble before. And I can remember times where my dad used the booming voice and where my dad was really quiet. But it always sounded booming. Right? So even if God said, who told you you were naked? I picture Adam going, oh. And he says, did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to. And a command is stronger than telling, right? It's a great reminder there. And then, of course, what's Adam's response? (laughs) Well, see, God, she gave me fruit. Oh, let me remind you who she is to God. You made her and brought her into my life, and then she gave me the fruit. Nice excuse, right? Good try, good try. And then what does God say? Eve, is this true? What did you do? And what does Eve say? The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. Who told the truth? They both did. Didn't they? She gave me the fruit, God. The serpent deceived me. No, they didn't have to say it like that. They were totally trying to get out of it for sure. They're throwing the blame everywhere they can think of. I'm surprised they didn't throw some other animals in there. You know, there was that rhinoceros around the corner. <laughs> it is interesting, though. They told the truth, but they did it in a way, right? They, they tried to get out of it. They tried to manipulate it. I don't picture God buying it at all. And that's where our story ended. So now we get to start asking some observational questions, and I've got two lovely assistants that I'm going to bring up here, because they're going to be walking around with these mics so we can make sure and hear everybody that's talking. Here you go, Heather. Thank you so much. It's on. And Dave. So they're going to be working the aisles right here, and uh, that way we can hear each other, because you guys are going to be bringing up some observational questions or answers as well. So my first, story, my first question about the story then in observation, put on your observation glasses. What do we know about the Garden of Eden? If, if you raise a hand or something, they'll know to bring you the microphone. That makes it a lot easier. It's perfect. It's perfect. What else? Beautiful. It's beautiful. It was created for them. Ah, good point. Peaceful. Peaceful. Quiet. Quiet. Carson, I know you got a loud voice. Shout it from the back. Abundant. Goodness. Yeah, it's not like that was the only fruit tree in the garden, for sure. Okay, another question. What do we know about the serpent, the first character of this story? He's Satan. We can assume that, okay? Scripture tells us that later on. Yeah. He's deceitful. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. A trickster. A trickster, yeah. Okay, what else do we know about Satan? How did he get to be in the garden in the first place? Do you remember? It doesn't come from in our story, but it comes from the greater story of Scripture. He was one of the most beautiful animals, creatures. You're correct. And even before he came to be in the garden, he was one of the most beautiful of the creations God had made. And what happened to where he ended up in the garden, anybody? He got kicked out of heaven for what? Does that sound familiar? Trying to be like God? 
Getting kicked out of somewhere? Yeah, right? I want to read you a scripture from Isaiah. It's on your sermon notes. Isaiah 14, 13, and 14. And this, this scripture does not just refer to Satan and the fall of Satan. It also refer, refers to the fall of the king of Babylon. But let me read you this. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. So we know how Satan came to be in the garden. What might he be up to in the garden? What is, what is this serpent about? Okay, so he wants to lie and deceive man with the intent of maybe helping man fall. I think it's funny that he's, well, not funny, but that he's trying to bring people down for the same reason he was brought down. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? What do we know about what Satan is going for in life now? Doug has talked about this in the last few sermons, especially the one where he talked about us being a target. Why are we a target? Why are we Satan's target? He wants us to love him. What else? He wants to take God's children away from him. What else? He wants to hurt God, right? And he's afraid of fighting directly with God because Scripture tells us he knows he's going to lose. So he chooses to fight it among God's creation, right? His children, okay? Another question for you. Adam, Matt? what do we know about him? What do we know about Adam? Matt? Yes. Can I ask a question? Yeah, for sure. Weren't there more serpents in the garden than just one? And, I mean, didn't God create the anim- all the animals? Hmm. And was that serpent really Satan to start with, or did he possess that that is an excellent question unfortunately it's not one we can answer fully from scripture we do know that there was at least one serpent we will assume there were more than one but we don't know that for certain and whether it was satan from the beginning or whether satan possessed the serpent and spoke through the serpent we don't really know we don't really that's an excellent question though and How did Satan really get into the garden if he didn't possess something? It's a great question. God didn't put him in that garden. So how would that happen? I can only think of two ways that Satan would get in the garden. He either went there on his own, or God placed him there. Uh, Matt, isn't it that God cursed him after that happened with Adam and Eve, that he would have to uh, crawl on his belly the rest of his life. That's exactly the curse that he gave the serpent, Satan. Uh, When God kicked out Adam and Eve, he also cursed the serpent, or Satan, and cursed him that he'd always have to crawl around on his belly. Yes, something happened there. Now, Scripture, all of Scripture, doesn't paint us a whole lot of detail as far as what that looks like. But it happened one of those ways. Either way, whether Satan went there himself or God placed him there or whether Satan was there as a serpent from the beginning or he possessed the serpent, either way, we can trust that who's in charge? God, right? And we know from experience and also from what Doug was preaching that Satan has to ask for the ability to do things, to mess with us, right? Okay. 
Got another question for you. What do we know about Adam and Eve so far? They're naked. We know that. Created by God. Hands on. They were the, in fact, if you think about that, they were created in the not normal process that the rest of us were created in, right? Without getting into the nitty-gritty details, um, we were created in a very physical way that God was involved in, but he created them in a special way. They were the first. What else do we know about them? In the image of God, he created them. Later in Genesis, it tells us that. Yeah, what do you got over here? Just, just a question. How long were they in the garden before they... Uh, That's a great question. I wish, I wish that God gave us those details. I don't know. They might have been in, that may have happened the first day in the garden, for all I know. And the way I behave, sometimes I assume that it happened the first day in the garden. But it may have been years, centuries even. We have no idea how long they were in the garden before this happened. We know that they were beloved of God. And yeah, that we they do were know targeted that. by Satan. Yes, just as Doug preached, they were loved by God. They were still loved by God afterwards, and they were definitely targeted by that serpent, weren't they? And that serpent targeted who? Eve, right? Now, we can assume, because she handed him the fruit, they were both there, but who did the serpent speak to? Eve. Can you think of any reason, I'm not trying to cut off other questions, we're just headed somewhere, can you think of any reason why the serpent would have chose, out of the two people in the garden to talk to, why would he choose Eve? You think maybe she was more naive? Okay. She was weak. I think they were both weak, but she was weak too. That's the way to get to Adam. Yeah. Women are emotional. Okay, so he might have appealed to emotion a bit. We'll, we'll come to it in a minute. Okay. Somebody else, yes. Because uh, it's kind of like he had to pinpoint both of their weaknesses. So what is like, if he would look at the situation and thought, okay, how will I get to Adam? Something tells me just getting into one-on-one with Adam isn't going to work, but the way to get to Adam. <laughs> well, we know he's really crafty, so that could be true. Now, the only comment I have about all the things we've come up with so far is Scripture doesn't necessarily tell us any of that. One thing that Scripture does tell us, however, is that God gave them a command. But what do we know about God giving that command? Who did he give it to? Adam. He gave it to Adam. We know from Scripture that Eve was not present at the time that that command was initially given. Now, it is possible that God also took a time later on and told Eve directly. But we don't know that. So if he didn't do that, how would Eve even know about the command? Adam told her. Adam told her. And he added to God's command. Either, yeah, oh man, you're good. Either Adam added to God's command or Eve did. One of the two of them added that you couldn't touch the fruit. The initial command only said, if you eat from the, the fruit of that tree, you will die. Now Eve, in response to the serpent, says, if, if we eat from it or even touch it, we will die. So something was lost in translation there a little bit. Now, whether Adam added that or Eve added that, we don't know. But to me, it's kind of interesting that he chose to speak to the person who wasn't directly there at the first time that that command was given. Why would that be? Or why might that be? He really said that. He couldn't answer. 
right? So we can see how crafty this serpent guy is. He goes after the person who didn't directly hear it from God, and then he directly asks her about that. Did he really say? Now, we we could run too far in that direction, but it is interesting to think about that, isn't it? Okay? So what do we know about Eve's response? We know that she added to the the, uh, command a little bit. And then Satan hits her one more time. He really only says two things to her. So this is the second time. Why do you think he said what he did when he said, surely you won't die? God knows that when your eyes are opened, you'll become like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. What is he getting at there? Why is that the deception he uses? What do you think? I don't know. Maybe that... Oh, well, you're not as good as Adam, or oh, you're not as good as God, and you need to eat the fruit to Could be better? I don't know. Could be. It feels like the whole approach is God's holding out on you. And what's, what I find interesting as I look at it is that as you watch Adam and Eve, something about them does change exactly as Satan predicted. They actually seem to not have this knowledge of good and evil that they actually do have. So, so what does that tell us about what Satan said to them? You're holding out on us, or God's holding out on you. Yeah, and it also tells us that he gave them some truth and some deception. Have you ever noticed that Satan likes to do that in your life? He takes a nugget of truth, but it's like he then throws it in a blender and funks it up a little bit, messes it up. But it also teaches them that that you got a choice. Yeah? Yeah? Let's talk about choices. So he lays out all this deception, and he, get, he plants this idea in Eve's mind that God may be holding back something good, which then, if you're like me, you start to run to, God, are you really good? Do you really care about me? Can I really trust you to take good care of me? So he lays all that in. In fact, if you look at your sermon notes, you can throw that in there. Under the picture here, it says, the lies that Satan told. It says, God can't really be trusted to take good care of me. God can't really be trusted to take good care of me. That, in my opinion, is kind of what Satan was getting at there. Like Carson said, I'm holding, he was holding something back. So let's talk about choices. If I'm thinking God can't really be trusted to take good care of me, and I'm looking at that tree with the fruit and the promise that it'll give me more and make me more like God, what choice do I have? What choice did Eve have? She could have trusted God. What would that have looked like? Yeah. She didn't have to eat it. She still made the choice. Were there other choices she could have made? What else could she have done other than not eating it? (laughs) Okay. She could have taken, thrown it at the serpent. What else? Tell the snake to go away? She definitely could have done that. What else? Turn to Adam. Turn to Adam, told her husband? Ooh, now that's one that I hadn't heard. I've, I've led this story before. That's one I've never heard. She could have talked to God, right? He said, did God really say? So why isn't her thought, hmm, God will probably be in the garden later. God, did you say? She didn't do that, though, did she? Why is that? 
She wanted immediate gratification, and I'm pretty sure she knew what God said. I totally agree. She wanted it then. Man, that idea was, you know how those ideas get, how temptation gets, right? It gets in you, and then it just festers and grows and sucks you in more and more. What could, it, what could Adam have done? He's in the picture. Well, for one, he could have not eaten the fruit when she offered it to him. Sure. Yeah, because he said, <clears throat> um, he did really say that. We, we probably shouldn't do this, but he didn't. I, <laughs> he could have killed the snake. Right? But think about what would have gone differently if they'd have made different choices. Now, I personally... Even if they had made the choice not to, I personally think eventually somebody would have. Because eventually I would have been here, and I'd have gone, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Right? At least it wasn't me. Yeah. I don't know if the serpent was in the tree. Most of the pictures that have been painted to illustrate it have the serpent in the tree. I don't know. That's a great question. He was close to it, I'll bet. It had to have been within sight. And I picture him right there by it. I picture him maybe, maybe even curling around one of the pieces of fruit, right? Like, check this one out. This is the ripest fruit on the tree. Yeah. That's a great question. How come when God was walking through the garden, he called out to Adam? I assume that it's, it's a combination of the two things there. First off, I created Adam first, and I kind of put him in charge in a sense. And he's the one I gave the command to. So Adam, because God already knew what happened, right? Matt? Yes. How did Eve know what the difference between right and wrong was if she hadn't eaten from the apple? Neither Adam nor Eve knew the difference between right and wrong. And in that sense... The serpent told him the absolute truth. When you eat that, you're going to know good and evil. They didn't know it till that point. That's an interesting thing to think about. All they knew was existence in the garden with God. And up till that point, they'd followed his one rule. Go ahead, Dave. You've got somebody over there? Uh, Yes, Matt. Uh, The way I see this is when God created Adam and Eve, he, in his heart and in his mind, he wanted it to be perfect, everything perfect. And he did his best to make them see that. But he had a plan. Even though he knew we wouldn't do it because hmm. we have good free will. And yeah. you, you take all the scripture. The woman, how could she be the seed of Jesus, or Jesus her seed, if she, di- if she didn't crush the serpent's head, which God had the plan there all along? Totally. From the first killing of the first blood, the blood to cover us. We know, because we know a lot more of Scripture, that this story is a small story that fits into a lot of Scripture. Isn't it interesting, though, how we, we approach this passage that we all know fairly well, most of us, and we bring certain things into it, and we have certain assumptions You know, I don't know how many times I've heard people argue 
that women should not be in leadership and use this passage as one of the arguments. It kills me. It kills me. Because the biggest gap in leadership in this story, in my opinion, is not Eve. It's the man who had the command given directly to him. The man who stayed there silently while she was tempted and didn't even question her when she offered the fruit. Just took it. They both were weak. And it changed everything. But you're right, that plan never changed. So at one point we could go, man, everything's gone now. Everything's horrible. Everything's falling apart. It's the fall of man. Everything's horrible now. But within God's big plan, his love didn't change. They were still the beloved, right? In fact, what does he do for them outside of our story, after the story? What does he do for them before he kicks them out of the, the garden? He makes them clothes, and he does it in a very specific way. He doesn't go to Old Navy. (laughs) He doesn't sew fig leaves together. What does he do? He kills an animal, and I assume, based on what Scripture has said, that it was probably the first death of an animal. Definitely the first killing of an animal. It was a sacrifice. And that, like you said tells us the bigger picture, right? We are a work in progress, and there's so much we can gain out of this story. But the big thing that sticks out to me is they mess up, they make excuses, but rather than God getting into this super long lecture, he gives the consequences, and he provides for them that sacrifice and that clothing, which to me communicates, I'm not done with you. This isn't over but it's going to get hard. And who's your provider? In this new life you're about to experience, who is your provider going to be? He hands them the clothing. And they go off into this new experience that's totally different. So now we're going to talk application a little bit. We've still got our microphone people. You guys are amazing. I know you can't get to everybody, and it's working out just fine. We have to then look at how do we apply that to us today and now with where we're at. Living in Salem, Oregon or or nearby in the United States of America in 2012, this story applies just like it did back then. So tell me, what do you learn from God in this story? I think that one of the things we need to learn is that in the, as far as the fruit of the tree of good and evil, that Adam and Eve knew enough about right and wrong because they knew it was wrong to eat that tree. But the fruit of the tree was more like going into depth about what evil is. And I think that sometimes we are tricked into learning too much about evil in order to fight it Mm -hmm. rather than just staying away from it. When they teach bank tellers (laughs) about money and counterfeit Counterfeit money, money, yeah. 
They make them handle the real thing. And why is that? Why do they make bank tellers handle real money and fake money? No, they don't let them handle fake money until Just the real they money. have handled the real money for a long time. They might hand them some fake money now and then for them to be able to perceive. They're going to feel the difference, right? That's right. It's an excellent point. And we talked about the original language for the word naked, meaning a little bit more than just no clothes. The original word, uh, the original language behind the words talking about the knowledge of good and evil and knowing good and evil means more than just mentally knowing the difference between good and evil, but it also means tasting and experiencing intimately. To know in Hebrew can even refer to being sexually intimate with a partner. So when it says that she would know the difference between good and evil, it didn't just mean she would know, because you're right, they knew they weren't supposed to eat off that tree. But she would know, she would taste, she would feel, she would be intimate with that understanding. And to know the real thing, to feel that real money if you were a bank teller, and then all of a sudden be handed something that felt more like Monopoly money, you're going to know right away on touch. This isn't right. Excitement of, I don't know, of taking that fruit and, and... What do you guys think? Do you think that there was a bit of excitement in doing the wrong thing and taking the fruit and in the idea of what it might have? I think there probably was. Right, because the, the, the other promise was you'll be more like God. There's something there, yeah. And it is, right? I mean, can we, can we just talk openly about that for a second? Sin can be pretty exciting at times. Yeah. And that feeling of I'm in charge sometimes feels good. We've got two over here. We'll go to the mic, and then we'll come down to you. But see, also the bigger picture, too, is that with God, he realized right then and there that we are not perfect. <laughs> and that, um, you know, the consequences that Adam had was death. Mm. But he learned right there to forgive. And that uh, as a leader, <laughs> you can't be angry all the time and look down and uh, talk down on your followers and expect, expect to gain from them by, uh, by yelling and by just talking to them. Totally. Okay. You know, some people have to be weak in order to rise, rise up. And that could be also what he's trying to do too. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead. I think the thing that impresses me most about the story is the fact that perhaps this is the first time that human felt that adrenaline rush that we get when we're doing something risky or dangerous. Yep. And that adrenaline rush can become very addictive. It's intoxicating. Yes. That's something that we have to watch out for in our own lives. 
That's because a, we can very easily fall into that addiction. Right? And we're not just talking addiction to illegal substances. We're talking addiction to my way. We're talking addiction to craving danger and risk and doing what's wrong because we do crave that partly. Oh, man. Yeah, Carson? I think one of the other things that is that is an application that can be added is the specific nature of the, you know, if you're trying to analyze how does Satan operate, how does Satan attack, uh, the specific nature of, you know, she didn't approach and it wasn't like, well, God said we can eat from any tree, but the, this marijuana tree we're not supposed to smoke. That's not what happens in the story. It's right. Um, it's specifically the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And so I, I think it opens the eyes to I'm not looking for, you know, what temptation to what temptation to do bad acts, that kind of thing, but specifically the temptation to be God, the temptation to... That's right. We, we can easily lose sight of the fact and think that this was all about just choosing something that we craved to do, that the fruit looked tasty, and she wanted that. But there was way more to it. There was the promise that you will be like God, and she wanted that. Matt, um, you know, I think we take God's love for granted, I mean, we do wrong. We don't want our friends, family, whoever to know we hide our sin or what we're doing wrong. But we take God for granted because he sees it. Yeah. He sees it and we still do it. I mean, it's like we care more about what people say. It's, it's like taking God's love for granted that he's going to forgive us and that's it. We're going to end on that question, and I want to thank our microphone people. Thank you. Round of applause for Heather and David running around with microphones. On that note, on the note of what Liz just said, which kind of added on to what Carson said, we take God's love for granted. There's another tree in the garden that we know something special about, the tree of life. And they're allowed to eat from that tree, right? Right? There was only one tree they weren't allowed to eat from. So not only do we have this choice to to commit sin, but there are other trees to choose from, and there's one tree, the tree of life, that is special. And they could have eaten from that tree, and maybe they did. But this time, they chose the other tree. For us, the applications are huge. They're all over the place. So I know that you're going to walk away with an application. But can't we all agree that Satan loves to get us to question whether or not God is good? Can't we all agree that Satan likes to deceive us and make us think that maybe at times God holds something back from us that we should have? That there's this promise of something better than what God offers. And can we also agree, and this is where sin gets even uglier, but I think we have to deal with it. Can we also agree that a little bit of us at times really does want God's position. We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge because some part of us thinks life will be better if we're in charge of what happens to us and what we do. Can we agree to that? That's the ugliest side of sin in my opinion, isn't it? I mean, there's just the the surface level sin stuff like, yeah, I was tempted to do it and I did it. But that ultimate rejection, if you look at your sermon notes, It says, boil that down at the bottom of the page, boiling down the lies that Satan tells us. 
At the base of Satan's deception to us is this idea of rejecting or rebelling against God. So that's what those two R blanks are. Rejection and rebellion equal posing as God. At any level, when we reject or rebel against what God provides or what God asks, we're posing as God. We're taking a little bit of God's place where we shouldn't be. We have no business being there. God gave a lot for Adam to be in charge of in that garden. But not that. If you turn to the back of your sermon notes, it says the immediate change that happened was they were naked, fully exposed, is what you put in the blank there, fully exposed and ashamed. And that picture of being fully exposed and ashamed before God is one I can connect with. Fully exposed and without protection. And what protection were they without? God's protection. God protected them by saying, don't eat from that tree. He kept them back from what was going to happen when they ate from that tree. And now that they had, his protection was gone. And that's why I'm so thankful that later in the story, he kills the animal and he gives them the clothes and he shows them, I'm still involved. I still care about you. There is hope. Our challenge at the middle point of your sermon notes on the back, it says to live as people or to live as the people we know we really are. That's what this whole sermon is about. We're supposed to live as the people that we really know that we are. I'm Matt. I'm good at some things. I'm bad at some things. I'm goofy in some ways. I'm dumb in some ways. But who I really am is a beloved child of God, a target who's protected. I'm somebody who carries the image of God, and I'm somebody who's broken. And I'm a work in progress. God's not done. He's changing me. He's transforming me. He's cleansing me. There's a beautiful word that's come down through church history called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. This is a beautiful word packed with a ton of stuff, but basically it means that God's hands are active in our lives, making us better and better and better. It means I'm a work in progress. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 17 says, But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters. You are loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through your lives and through your belief in the truth. He called you to this gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So we're supposed to stand firm knowing who we really are. Our responsibility to each other, the last blank on your sermon notes, is to stand firm together. Really our role is to remind each other of who we really are. Chewy? You're beloved, loved by God. Dean, you're broken. (laughs) I had to pick on you. (laughs) We're all targets that are protected. We're all bearing the image of God. And the image of God didn't stop when they were cast out of the garden. It might have gotten a little bit dirty and muddy. But that sanctification that we are a work in progress means that God is not only fixing us up, 
but he's fixing the image of him that we carry around. Praise God, right? 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, Be alert. Be of sound and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, the serpent, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. I'm going to add a word, together. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the entire world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So as we live out life, knowing who we really are, that we are beloved, that we are broken, that we are protected targets, that we bear the image of God, and that we're a work in progress, we stand together against the lies and deception. We stand against our own desires to be more like God and to take his role. And we need to remind each other, no, it is better in his hands. It is better in his hands. It doesn't feel like it right now, but it is better. He's way more trustworthy to be in charge of my life than myself. Can we remind each other of that? Can we carry that together and remember we are this together, that that we are God's creation, not the other way around? He's in charge. We've got a little music video that we're going to end today with. This is Selah today. We're not going to have communion. We're not even going to do prayer stations or anything like that. We're just going to listen to the words of this song. This song reminds us who we really are and our role as we go out from here today, family, together, is to make sure that we stand together and that Eve doesn't fail Adam in that moment of temptation and Adam doesn't fail Eve in that moment of temptation as we're looking at that tree craving that fruit. We stand together, and together, hopefully one of us will be like, um, no, let's not do it this time because we trust in God together. So can we drop the lights and play that? I think it's in there for you. Thank you. Thank you.